For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If you look at this passage last week, as we've been working our way through Romans, and we really are coming to another moment in which Paul is, is hitting another climatic expression of what he's trying to teach throughout the book of Romans. You remember two weeks prior to this, we spoke about the experiences that the Christian encounters because he's put his faith in Jesus Christ, because he's been justified by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins and the righteousness that Jesus Christ brings upon them when they trust and believe in him. We learned of three great experiences that become ours. The first one is we have peace with God. The next one is that we have access into this overflowing, abounding grace where God begins to pour out to us and pour out upon us all of the extensive benefits of that salvation. And then it says we rejoice in the hope of glory. In other words, those graces that begin to become ours when we trust in Jesus Christ only point us in a direction of an eschatological end in which we will enter into the full benefit of those glories when we enter into that place where God is magnified and glorified forever before us and we will be glorified with Him and we will enjoy in a perfect state all of the satisfaction and benefit of that outflowing salvation that's come to us. Now, the individual looking at that might say, Paul, maybe that's all true, but right now we're suffering and we're being persecuted and we're going through great tribulations and Paul doesn't even miss a beat. He says, and we glory also in tribulations. Because we see in all this that God is working within us a character, that as we endure that tribulation, there's a proven character that rises from our lives. We demonstrate that our faith was made of a substance that was not simply trying to fulfill us for a moment, us seeking some companionship or a moment of ease from some guilt that we had or a moment in which we rid ourselves of a touch of shame on our lives, but our faith fully and totally anchored in Jesus Christ. And therefore, because it was completely and totally anchored in Jesus Christ, it endured in the middle of a long, drawn-out tribulation. And that's the idea that was painted for us in that passage. That enduring tribulation, that enduring difficulty. You don't, by the way, endure a momentary time in which someone cuts you off in traffic, is what we said last week. You endure difficulties and hardships that you have to go through over an extensive period of time. And Paul says, it's okay. That's even something we rejoice in because these long enduring trials and tribulations only give proof as we endure to the real nature of our faith, the character, the true proven character of our faith. And then he says that that proven character of faith is expressed in a love of God that is poured abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we spoke of that love that we have for God as not simply God loving us, but us through the Spirit loving God back. And that it's this love of God that pours out from our hearts in the midst of tribulation that causes us to rejoice. That I rejoice in the midst of my trials and my difficulties and my hardships. When I go through great tribulation, when I discover that I've not just believed Him for my own benefit, but that my belief was anchored in and responsive to a deep, profound love for him 
a love that goes out for him and that what makes my hope not ashamed. That's what proves the nature of the hope that I have in him in that moment. Do you get the picture here? You get the picture? We have this experience when we come by faith to Jesus Christ where we just are so glad that we have peace with God. The hostility between us and God has ended. And we realize God has opened up a whole new world to us. We get in joy and we even begin to, as a result, look forward to His coming and that day in which we'll come to the end of this life, enter into eternal glorious life with Him. And this is tested by trials and difficulties and tribulations, but we find that we endure in those trials and difficulties and tribulations because our faith is true, the character of it is real, and the abiding expression of that character is not simply that we endure because you know, we don't want him embarrassed or because we're just stubborn or because we're afraid of stepping out from what we publicly committed ourselves to and we want to save face. It's nothing like that. It, what causes us to endure is because we experience in the midst of the trial this rising tide of love for God. It's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's where Paul brings us to at the end of verse 5. And now Paul pivots from this expression and this experience of love to the great proof of that love of God. And now he speaks about the love of God and how it's proved to us. Individuals who look at verse 5 that I've just talked about will tell us that the love that's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit is not our love for God, but it's God's love for us. They look at the text and say, that's probably most accurate with the grammar that's expressed in that text, that it's really the experience of and the sensation of God's love for us. I'm not going to argue with them. I actually think that that's largely the case. However, I think it is demonstrably true that when you come into an outpouring of love upon your life, the way that you realize it, the way that you know that you're profoundly loved, your experience or encounter with that love is expressed in the love that pulsates back from you towards the thing that you're receiving that love from. In other words, a little child doesn't really sit around and evaluate how much his mother and father loves him or her. They don't think about that. But then that child goes to school and learns how to make a little imprint of his hand into a little platter full of plaster, and they write their little name at the bottom of it, and they rush home to give it in adoration to their mother. Or the little child spends all day long working on a masterpiece in which they're drawing some depiction of playing catch with their father in front of the house. I remember myself drawing the little picture of my father and I rabbit hunting and going out with our little beagle hunting rabbits, then going and presenting that picture to them. And it's an expression of their adoration. They know. They don't know really how much their parents love them, but they know at some point they, they love their parents. They know they love their parents. But they don't give a thought to the fact that the love they have for their parents is merely a reciprocating of the greater love that the parent has for them. We don't learn that really until we have our own children. And then when we have our own children, we realize, wow, how much my parents love me. That sensation, that love, that appreciation, that valuing that I had for them was a resonance. It was just a resonating of the love they had for me. And all the more when we love God. That's why John says in 1 John 4, 9, we love Him because He first loved 
us. That's it. This impulse, this resonating, this expression of love that rises up for us, that, that endures even and even wonderfully expresses itself in the middle of our tribulations and difficulties is just a confirmation that we love Him because He first loved us. And so now what Paul is going to say to us in these next five verses is an expression of or is a evidence of this love that God has for us. He's going to, for a moment, seek to prove the love of God for us. And then he's going to show us how God's love came to us and the way God addressed us. And then finally, he's going to finish his statement by showing us how we are, in a sense, secured or brought into a great assurance because of that love. So let's look at this passage now that's before us, verses 6 through 10 that we've just read. And let's consider first this love of God that is proven to us. Paul anchors the testimony of God's love for us and that we receive from God. And he anchors it in the fullest expression of where God brings that love to us and demonstrates that love to us. And it's in the death of his son in the place of our death and the offering of Christ's resurrected life to be provided for us so that we might have abounding life. It's his death in the place of our death and it's life, his life for our life. And that's what Paul will go to to prove and demonstrate how much God loves us. John 3.16, we learned it as children. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. These verses before us really are a commentary. They're Paul's commentary on John 3.16. The reality is all of the New Testament epistles are in a sense commentary on John 3.16. Paul says in another place in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus said that God sent his son because he loved the world. Here Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In Galatians 2.20, Paul speaks of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved the world. He loved the church. He loved me. He loves the world. He loves the church. He loves you. The demonstration of it is in his giving of himself for us. Again, John, the Apostle John describes this in 1 John 4.10. He writes this, And this is love, not that we loved God, remember he loves us first, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this passage, Paul is going to illustrate this expression. He's going to prove this expression of God's supreme love for us. And he's going to show it to us at least in three different ways. We can see it first that he shows us that God's love comes to us without conditions. God's love comes to us without conditions. It says in our passage, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is, he gave himself in death for the very ones who were calling for his death. He gave himself and offered up his body to those who took his body and flayed it with stripes. He gave himself and he offered up his hands and his feet to those who took his hands and feet and pierced them with their animosity. He gave himself and love and generosity to those who would mock his love and generosity in the midst of his sufferings. He sent his son to death for us. In this sense, God's love was unconditional coming to us. Now that doesn't mean 
that when God loves us and when we come upon God's love and when we receive God's love, that God's love does not make demands upon us. His love always calls us away from our sins. But first, when His love comes to take hold of us and take us and bring us unto Himself, His love finds us in those sins and it suffers for them Why we're in those sins. It's a love that is sacrificed for us without any condition being met on our part. Before the gift of His saving work and before the gift of Him retrieving us out of our sins and before the outpouring of His life in order to make us holy and to sanctify us and draw us that we might live for Him and worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him before all that, His love just simply found us in our sins and suffered for us in that place. No condition. It came to us unconditionally. Here's another thing Paul shows us in this passage. He shows us that not only was God's love for us without conditions, but it was also a love that is without counterpart. That is, there's nothing like it. There's no imitation to it. There's nothing to compare with it. It's a love that is without counterpart. He says this, some might barely consider dying for an upright person, a person who lifts up a good and righteous standard in the community. You might consider dying for them, and and maybe even more so, you might die for a person who is generous or benevolent, a good person. But God proves His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lot of ideas and expressions of people self-sacrificing themselves for others throughout novels, throughout our cinematography or our movies, throughout our literature, throughout the folk tales that are told to us. You can read the book, The Last of the Mohicans by James Finnemore Cooper, and you'll see that the great story leads to a great sacrifice of one individual for a lovely couple that's in love with one another and he gives his life for them. Or you can read The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens and you can see how there's this pathetic man who at the end of it finds a woman of great virtue and who is in love with another man and he sacrifices their life for them in order that they might continue on with one another. You can read stories like this over and over again. You can see it repeated over and over and over again. These themes, these stories of men who will sacrifice themselves for some great principle and some great love and for people in it. And it happens in real life too. But nothing like this happens. Nothing like this happens. A love so profound and so deep that it meets us not deserving of saving, but deserving of death and that eternal, who dies for us while we are transgressing against His will and living in sin. Christ demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's that's the story that's brought before us here. A God who gives Himself to us in the midst of all of our animosity towards Him and all of our sin towards Him. And I don't think we know or can understand how truly awful sin is. In fact, the reality is we don't know and begin to appreciate how truly awful sin is until someone sins against us. We can read the newspapers. We can tabulate all the people that are dying in the streets in some city we can look at all the crimes that take place where people are rushing in looting some store and we can tisk 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 and ask ourselves what is the world coming to but then let somebody break into your home and rob you 
Let somebody violate you. Let someone sin against you. And not only do we tisk tisk about where the world is coming to, at that moment, the world comes crashing down in our heads. Everything is turned upside down and it's terrible and it's awful. They lied to me and they stole from me and they defrauded me and they broke their promise to me and they betrayed me and they violated me. And now it's a terrible thing. A terrible thing when it happens to you. When it happens to you, sin is a terrible thing. Have you ever thought that every sin that is ever committed is committed above everything else as a direct affront and assault to God? That every sin is against God? David came to realize that. When he confessed the sin, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. God, ultimately it's at your feet and it's before you and it was against you that this took place. And the fact is that when people sin against us, we don't like it But to some extent, I hate saying it, we can sympathize with it. We can even somehow regulate living in a world like this because we're sinners. We see some approximation of that sin in our own lives, in our own selves. We understand something of the compromise that takes place. We can be indignant and we can stomp about it, but still, once we get back and recoil from it for a moment, it has some kind of, some kind of similitude to our own experience in our own lives. But God is completely holy and pure in every way. God is all good and all righteous. God is of pure eyes, it says, to even look upon sin. Even the heavens and the highest heavens are unclean in His sight. And God has only a well-disposed desire for the things that He's created and made. He desires for it to flourish in its worship of Him and its knowledge of Him and its experience of Him. Everything that is not taking us towards Him is taking us into the world. That's what worldliness is. It's sin. It's all around us. Yet we become numb to it. God doesn't. You can even become numb to the assaults against your own self. Kind of develop a bit of a callus against the injustices of life and just put your head down and plow through. God can't. It's an affront to Him. No calluses around Him. Sin is awful. We won't know what sin is entirely. We'll never know what is entirely. But here is the God who cannot become accustomed with sin, who we sin against, and our sin is a direct reproach against Him. Every sin that we commit is an assault against His character and His nature. He alone knows the awfulness of sin. And all sinners are marked by that sin, and yet it's sinners not respectable individuals, not righteous individuals, not benevolent individuals, selfish sinners who assault God with their sins. These are the ones that He loved and died for. That's who He died for when He died for us, for you and I. Here's another thing that Paul said. Not only is it an expression that is beyond counterpart or without comparison, and as we said, it's a a love that comes to us without any conditions, but... Paul then intimates that God's love, when it's received by those who have received Him and believe in Him and are redeemed, that it becomes a love that issues forward without constraint. It just keeps pouring out upon us. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, Paul writes, through the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. There's this outpouring of salvation, this very thing that Paul has talked about earlier, this access into grace that just keeps pouring out upon us. 
and will project itself out into the time in which we are brought into the full glory of God's very being and we'll be glorified in the outpouring of that grace. He's just saying, listen, it's not constrained now. It just will unceasingly, unendingly flow out to us, the love of God. If God could love you and God could bring his love to you when you were sinners, rebelling and assaulting him, think now that he saved you and redeemed you, the unabated flow of love that is yours. That's what he's saying. It's unconstrained. It's not drawn back. It will not end. Out of the infinite riches of Jesus, he just keeps giving and giving and giving again. He didn't withhold himself from you when you were a sinner. Will he withhold anything from you now that you're his child? He loves you. Loves you with an unconstrained love. That's what Paul's writing about here. How wonderful, how glorious. Now, the second thing I want you to look at here is, I want you to consider the love of God and how God addressed us. The love of God and how God addressed us. Up to this point in time, as we've been looking through the book of Romans, Paul has been trying to demonstrate the complete sinfulness of men. Sinful in their idolatry, sinful in their false morality, sinful in their religious activity, completely incapable in any way of ever saving themselves, ever delivering themselves. At the end of Romans chapter 1, he gives this degrading picture of the idolatry of men that first they worship the image of men and then they worship the image of four-footed things and then they worship the image of slithering crawling things it's like their idolatry is just getting more and more degenerate and with it their behavior becomes more and more degenerate and wicked and then he points out to the moralist who thinks he's above all those things that he's in the same boat he's in the same trajectory and then he points out to the religious jew who thinks yeah but i'm a religious jew no you're in the same situation as well And so he comes around to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, where at the end of it he says, all the world is guilty before God. And he demonstrates that they are in the same descriptive setting. They have the same heart seething in sin as that wicked idolater. He lays it out before them. And he does this all to demonstrate that they are rightly under the just wrath of God and that there is no way that they can save themselves and deliver themselves. There is only an answer by being justified or made right through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no work they can do. There's no labor they can do. There's no ethic they can follow. There's no religious group that they can align themselves with that will remove this sin from their life. They just have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so up to this point in time, he's arguing for the necessity of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But now Paul changes his view. He's talking about the same things But now he's arguing it in a different direction. Now he's arguing that in all this, the love of God is supremely shown to us. And because God's love is supremely shown to us, once you believe and trust in Him, you know you're secure in Him. You weren't secured by your works and your labor and your ethic and your religion or your religious alignment with individuals. You were lost from Him and you were drifting from Him and there was no hope for you and there was no way for you and you were an enemy of God and God loved you still. He gave Himself for you. And so in believing and trusting in Him, you're secure. You can secure yourself in that promise. And look how He presents this love of God and how God addresses us. He points out, way that he's making this argument prior to this time is to point out while he's making this idea that you cannot save yourself except through what Christ has done at the cross, 
He's had to prove that no matter what you think of yourself, you're really an enemy of God. You're really a sinner. You're really an individual who is so marred in your fallen state that you're marred creatures of God's purpose. You can't retrieve yourself. As a result, you're unable to save yourself. And now Paul takes that very point that he's made, that very argument he's made, this very thing that he's had to present before the people so that they wouldn't trust or rest in anything they could do in order to point them to the cross. And now he shows how God has addressed them in a wonderful way that I think is wonderful. Let's look at this more quickly. God knows, God declares it in this passage that we were enemies with God. Verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled. This speaks of our ongoing antagonism towards God before we came to him. The reason that we repulsed away from living in surrender to him and giving our life to him was not simply because we wanted to be cool with the cool crowd. It was because we had an inward animosity towards God. We didn't want him to rule our life. The reason we resisted this step where we lived in complete surrender to him and we acknowledged our complete inability to save ourselves, the reason we resisted coming under his lordship was because actually we reviled his lordship. We wanted to be the Lord. We were enemies against him. We are at odds in him. And not only were we enemies against God, but because of this, we were the objects of God's own wrath. He was enemies against us. Our lives were a constant and repeated expression of our rebellion before God. And so we were in that ground, in that territory. There was a hostility between us and God. He says, while you were enemies, Christ died for you. And then he says, we're working our way up from the text. You see this in verses 9 and 10. Now go back a little further up. And we see in verse 8, it says, we were sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we noted before, a sinner is somebody who's a transgressor. I actually asked this question of somebody just this week. Do you think of yourself as a sinner? Well, what's a sinner? I said, well, a sinner is a transgressor. He's somebody who transgresses. This individual doesn't necessarily, has not acknowledged a belief in God. He has too many questions. How do I explain that? Well, I said, you know, listen, you, you transgress against yourself every single day. You have an idea of how you want to live. You have an idea of the kind of person you want to be. You've thought about this in the past. You've got a model for yourself of the kind of person, the kind of way you want to live. It's guiding your life. It's kind of giving you a certain pattern to live in. And you don't follow your own expectations. You don't follow the standard you have for yourself. You disappoint yourself regularly. You don't keep your own standard, do you? You acknowledge you said. I said, you know what? Not only that, you don't just foul up weekly or monthly. You do it every single day. In fact, there's probably, there's probably a very short period of time before in your mind even you think about and you have ideas and thoughts that don't set well with you with your standard and expectation for yourself. Is that true? He goes, yeah, that's true. Well, then you're a transgressor. You transgress against your own idea of righteousness. Not only that, if you're transgressing against yourself, you're certainly transgressing against other people because, you know, they have a standard and they have an expectation and they need you to fulfill a certain role in society and around them and you don't oftentimes uphold the end of your bargain on these things. Now, if that's true, that you're a transgressor against others and you're a transgressor against yourself, the Bible teaches us that there's an absolute God who lifts up an absolute standard of righteousness and moral goodness. And that God presides over all things. And that's the basis of which we know right and wrong. And if you can't keep your own standard, imperfect as it is, you certainly haven't met the standards of that holy God. You're a transgressor. You're a sinner. Don't you see that? You actually acknowledge, yeah, I can, I can understand how that works. I can appreciate that. Christ died for sinners, transgressors, who transgress his will and his desire. Remember what God said, his great will is for us. 
You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. There's his standard. How are you doing? Fail at these things. Here's another thing. God identifies it again as ungodly. The very beginning of our passage says, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, what does it mean to be ungodly? You know what it means? It means to be unlike God. Unlike God. Which is odd, because when God created us, He said, let us make man in our own image. And He created us to be like Him. And in that approximation to Him, to know Him and worship Him and enjoy Him, here's the problem. Sin has come into our lives to such an extent that it's totally defaced what God had made so that now we're ungodly. We're unlike Him. Our lives don't express what we were made for. We are broken and marred and diminished. We are no longer like Him. We are no longer capable of reflecting Him. We are a tarnished heap of ruins barely outlining our intended purpose to represent God throughout His creation. And this is how God found us. God found us as enemies. God found us as sinners. God found us as ungodly. And yet when God steps forward to save us, and when God steps forward to deliver us, He did not address us as enemies. He did not address us as sinners as such. He did not address us as ungodly, although it is true. But as he came to reach out to us and bring to us his salvation, what he did was he, he addressed us as yet without strength. See that in our passage? When we were yet without strength. Okay. When we were helpless, he came and brought to us salvation and he died for us. This is the most merciful, gracious, kind, gentle way that God could have ever approached us. It basically, it's saying He's approaching us as if we were sick and dying and diseased and incapable of delivering ourselves. And He came to us as the good physician to heal us and raise us up and to accomplish what we could not accomplish for ourselves. There is no more merciful way that God could have dealt with you you were an enemy of God, but He didn't deal with you in saving you as an enemy. You were a sinner who transgressed against His laws, but He didn't come to you and deal with you as a sinner. He addressed those issues, but He didn't deal with you as a sinner. You were ungodly and defaced and ruined, a refuse to be cast off, but He didn't deal with you as ungodly and defaced and refuse to be cast off. He dealt with you as one who was just without strength. Incapable of providing this and accomplishing it to themselves. Incapable of bringing to themselves their own salvation. Incapable of restoring their life the image of God in themselves. Incapable of delivering themselves from the compounding of sin upon their life. Incapable of turning back from this impulse or image that just struck out in resistance against God. You came to Him and you said, God, I can't cleanse myself. I can't make myself fit in righteousness for yourself. I can't, I can't deliver myself from my sins. God found us in our inability, in our helplessness, in our lack of strength. Now, oh, He addressed the issues that make us enemies. He addressed the thing that makes us sinners. And He addressed this issue of being ungodly. He dealt with those issues, but that's not how He initially addressed us. 
He came to us in mercy. He came to us knowing that the arm of flesh would fail us, but that his arm was strong in salvation. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, 10, you have not dealt with us according to our iniquities. You have not dealt with us according to our transgressions. That's not how he dealt with us. He dealt with us as weak and helpless and without strength. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that wonderful? That that's how God came to you to deliver you and save you and rescue you. He dealt with you in that way because he loves you. It is the most merciful, the most kind. It is actually the only way in which God could have dealt with us and encountered us without bringing his judgment upon us. Because he loved us. Now here's the third thing. Consider here in all this God's love assuring us. God approached us as though we were without strength in order to save us. And yet when he died for us, he still died for us as enemies. He still died for us as sinners. He still died for us as the ungodly. But God's love chose to engage us as only those without strength, even though all the rest was true. Now here's what Paul is saying. If that's true, if God came to you in that way and chose to come to you in that merciful and that kind and that gracious way, now having reconciled you to himself, now having given his life to take away your sins, now having claimed you as his child, as his daughter, as his sons, what will he not give you? What will he not pour out upon you? What will he not deliver to you? What love now is withdrawn from you or not accessible to you of God? It's all yours. If he loved you in that state, in that way, and still came to you simply as one without strength, now having redeemed you and saved you and brought you into himself, what will not be yours as well. And so over and over again, Paul says, and there's actually two more times where Paul will use this phrase in Romans chapter 5 here, but he makes the phrase here twice, much more, much more, much more. I want to assure you that what's been opened up to you in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins and his death for you, I want to assure you in the love that's displayed in God giving his son to die for you is just the beginning of a much more love that you can be assured in. You're secure in these things. Much more, verse 9. Then having now been justified by his blood, which is just an expression of his death poured out for you, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath. God's judgment against sin is not going to touch us. This is the great point that Paul is driving at. We can be confident of a security that we have in believing in Christ and the salvation that he has provided such love will never turn its back on us and never turn back from us. Paul will say later on, Romans chapter 7, a description of the struggle that we have with sin and the condemnation that comes because of sin. And yet after dealing with it, that, that goes on in the conflict in the heart of the believer. Paul then goes and ends it in chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Because he's done all this for you. Because he's given his love for you when you were a sinner, when you were ungodly, when you were an enemy. Now you know in this love there's no condemnation for you. Nothing will go on to the end of chapter 8. It's all a part of one great theme that from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 8 that Paul is driving at. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. You're secure. Sure to the security of this outpoured love. This love that prevailed to save you and justify you 
and that you can rejoice in because you were incapable of saving yourself, now is a love that will never cease to find you and deliver you and meet you and answer you. You're secure in it. You can rest in these things. That's what Paul is saying here. Much more being justified by His blood, you'll be saved from the wrath. His judgment, His wrath will not touch you now. And then Paul goes on to say, much more having been reconciled. Much more having been reconciled, you shall be saved by His life. Not only this work, this death for you has brought you into reconciled relationship with God, and now that Christ has reconciled you to God through His death for your sins, suffering your place, what you deserve, He's not only removed His wrath from you so it won't touch you, but you are now in a situation, you're in a place where in relationship with Him, you will ever be in touch with Him. You will ever be in the enjoyment of the life that you have through Him. You will be saved by His life. That's eternity. Eternity is the pulsation of the salvation that is ever ours in Jesus Christ. Just coming to us. This is the eternal life that you may know Him. This is eternal life that you may enjoy God forever, experiencing His glory forever and ever. His life never withdrawn from us, always touching our lives. Always in touch with Him. See that? God's love assurance. Here's God's love first proving itself to us, proving itself to us in this unconditional love, in this love that is beyond comparison, in this love that is without constraint. God's love demonstrated in the fact that when He approached us and came to us, He didn't meet us as enemies or sinners or as ungodly, but He met us as helpless and without strength. And God's love now assuring us because God met us in that way and God did all that for us while we were enemies and sinners and ungodly. God saved us and delivered us. God's love assured to always be ours, always come to us, always keep us, always hold us. What's the application of all these things? Well, you didn't save yourself. We didn't gain this position with God because we were good children and we did a good job. We were secured and we were one because God loved us supremely. What does it mean? We can live in that assurance. We can live in that comfort. We can live in that encouragement. We can live with that sense of security. God loves us. It's Father's Day. Um... I can think of all kinds of wonderful things that my father provided for me. I hope I've provided it for my children. I hope you have as well. The greatest thing that we gave them was a, a secure environment in which they felt safe and protected. And, and then if they didn't, you taught them to go to the father and pray to him and that you could add his protection as well. I don't, I don't know what your prayers were like when you were a little child and you went to bed at night. Mine was always, uh, God put a bubble of protection around my house that no bad thing can come near. And, you know, the truth is, I lived in that bubble all of my life growing up. That sense of protection, but it, it radiated out from this providential care that was expressed in my father. Now, you might have not had that experience, but that's what God is to us. That's what God has done for us. He's delivered us unto himself in order that we might live under the canopy of His never-ending, infinite, extensive love. Secure. Secure. Confident as well. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, what would that mean for us if we grounded ourselves in this assurance 
you are moving by your spirit, the apostle, to write something that you want to be passed down and carefully explained from one generation to the next generation of your people and your children. You want to extol before them without doubt your prevailing love on their behalf in order that their lives might rise out of the captivation, the wonder, the glory, the confidence, the security of that love. God not scratching and clawing for attention, not seeking to prove ourselves worthy, unworthy we are, but you are worthy, and your love is so great and so profound and so wonderful. Help us to bask in that. Help us to live in that. Transform us as people who worship you and adore you and live in that comfort and live in that security and live with the confidence of gaining through Jesus Christ by your own deep providing a state, a status, of being under such profound love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.